Well, you've joined us tonight for the second week in our current series called Misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. We're studying together the Messiah and the Gospel of Mark tonight. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn there so that you can follow along for our, our second week here. Our message titled, The Journey to Understanding Begins. Before I get to the text, I want you to imagine for a minute that you've had the Bible, a Bible, your whole life, except it was in somebody else's language. Not your language, and, and not a totally foreign language, but maybe the nearest language to yours, one in which you understand really most of the words, it's comprehensible, but not quite all of the words. So, for example, you might be reading along in your Bible and come to Genesis chapter 24, verse 60. And you would be reading about Rebekah receiving a blessing from God, being told that she would have tens of thousands of children. Except in your language, rather than hearing a word that means giving birth to children, you interpret that word to mean giving birth to elephants. Thousands and thousands of elephants. What sense would that make? Well, not a lot. And this isn't just a a parable that I made up. This is an actual situation, not of some people group thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, but of a group that worships each week on the campus of First Baptist Church. And for some time now, we've uh, empowered a local Congolese church to use space in our building for worship every week. For years, that happened right where you're sitting in the chapel here on Sunday afternoons after we cleared out, they came in. And more recently, uh, they worship each week at the Buchanan Street Chapel. That's a, a part of a mission of our church. That people group called the Banya Malinge people uh, originates from the central, center part of the Congo speaks a language called Kenya Malinge. However, the, the nearest language in which the Bible has ever been translated is called Kenya Rwanda. It's a Bible that most of them use. And of course, they're intelligent people. They also speak, many of them, Swahili. Uh, they know quite a bit of French uh, from other influences. And so they can consult, unlike us, one or two or three different languages for a Bible to help understand it. But the one that they use every day, the one that might be in their house or that they might have two or three of or might read in worship is from Kenya, Rwanda, not Kenya Malinge, the language they speak in their homes, the language their life is lived in. So as another example, you might read Psalm 31.5 where it says uh, that we put our lives in the hands of a faithful God, except the word for faithful in Kenya Malinge is not the same as the word for faithful in Kenya Rwanda. In fact, the word that they were reading when they read in Psalm 31.5 that we put our hand, lives in the hands of a faithful God actually meant careless. Now, someone you wouldn't even give money to, much less your whole life. And that word occurs 82 times in the Bible, almost always describing God. What kind of God is careless with things like money or, or our lives that we're supposed to put in his hands. You would have to consult another Bible or a different translation if you wanted to really understand what was happening there. A study was done of several books of the Bible, but just to take as one more example, the book of Matthew in particular, they found 112 words that 
could not be understood in their language, in their Bible. In just the Gospel of Matthew, there were 112 words in their most frequently used translation that made no sense, that they could not understand in their language. That's why, uh, for the first time ever, a group of folks in the U.S. sat down with some Banya Malinge Congolese folks and a, a, a staff member from Pioneer Bible Translators and began making an alphabet for the language, putting it in print, so that uh, just this month, for the first time ever, uh, one book of the Bible, they started with the Gospel of Luke, was translated and printed in their native tongue. The first printing was 3,000 books. And uh, last week, the Congolese pastor that we partner with came home with 500 of them. The Gospel of Luke in Banya Malinge, excuse me, that's the people group. Uh, the language is Kenya Malinge. Uh, 500 of them that they're going to have a conference here in Amarillo and give away for free uh, because of your generous gifts to everyone from their tribe that now lives in Amarillo. It's the kind of thing you wouldn't think still happens today, but it's the truth. And it has to happen because unless we understand, it's hard to know our Bibles. It's hard to know our God. It's hard to know the Christ that we worship. Understanding is at the center of our series. It's at the center of the themes in Mark's gospel I share that story because it's not a long way off from where the disciples found themselves in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10 that we're looking at in this series. Well, sure, they knew Jesus' language. They were speaking in the same dialect. But when it comes down to defining who Jesus is, there are several things we find out that have been lost in translation. They may know what to call him, but they don't yet know who he is. And if they know who he is, they certainly don't yet know why God has sent him. Listening to their struggles, we can come to discover some new ways that the identity of Jesus changes our lives and what it means for us to be disciples even today. That section of the Bible starts in Matthew 8, 22, with a story about a blind man. Last week, we looked at the passage just before that where Jesus approached the disciples and said to them, Do you not yet understand? And Mark follows that, Do you not yet understand passage with a story about Jesus healing a blind man. Now, just like the paralytic story you're familiar with, who was lowered in from above, and the the deaf man in chapter 7, this blind man is brought to Jesus by his friends. They beg Jesus to touch him. It says they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Verse 24, and he looked up and said, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. And then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and He looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now we don't know why uh, Jesus feels the need to lead the man out of town before he performs this healing. Maybe it was to make the experience a little bit more personal or to avoid the uproar that it would have caused to do this in the middle of a crowd. But either way... 
This man is guided by the touch of Jesus. The blind man makes his way out of town. You have to wonder who they passed by as they went. Who else needed to see that if you follow the touch of Jesus, you might just gain your sight? It took friends to get this blind man there. It took Jesus to get him out of town and to restore his sight. They're living in a time that taught them to be on top of their religion, to live by the rules, to ensure that they were holy by adhering to all of the rules. But actually, the person that knows the truth in this world is the person that says, not I can follow the rules, but the person who comes to Jesus and says, I can't see a thing. I am lost. And Jesus shows everyone watching that true healing comes not when we're on top of things, but when we're brought to Jesus and have the courage to say, I'm blind. I don't understand. I can't see a thing. That's when Jesus says, put your hand in mine to this man. I'll take you to that place. I'll lead you to see again. And, and the miracle takes place in Mark's gospel in two stages. Did you notice? Two actions, Jesus performs this one treatment. He puts spit or his saliva in the man's eyes and he lays his hands on him. Now, unlike a lot of the practices in the gospel, somehow that one hasn't carried on in church tradition as a weekly healing process. That kind of touch is actually typical of Jesus' healings. He doesn't always use saliva, but even that is often common, a home remedy of the day that can be found in other Greek miracle events. It wasn't unique to Jesus. He says to him, do you see anything? It's the only time Jesus ever inquires about the effectiveness of his own healing, which leads me to believe that Jesus is pretty aware of what's happening in a situation like this. And then Mark uses a little play on words. Jesus asks a blind man if he sees anything. That ought to be funny enough as it is. And then it says the man looks up. It's like when your spouse asks you if you can hear them from across the room and you shout out, no. The blind man looks up, so he can see. Actually, literally, it means uh, he can see again, or he regained his sight. And he says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Which is essentially to say, I can see, but not clearly. And with the verb being to see again, the man clearly knew what a tree looked like for comparison, we get the idea that he's seen before. He probably wasn't born like this. And what he knows and what he tells Jesus is that his sight has improved, but he still can't see everything. And some of us get so used to living with bad vision that we just give up on trying to fix it. Maybe you have corrective lenses, but I bet you've also learned how to operate around your house when you've lost your glasses, or to to get around or make your way or do certain tasks when you can't quite see, or it's a little bit too dark, but you can make it from one room to the other. Doing that in trivial situations is one thing, but doing it, figuratively speaking, in our lives is much more dangerous that we would become used to kind of understanding what's going on in the scriptures and what Jesus is up to and start living with bad vision. Jesus says, do you see anything? When the blind man looks up, he says, I can see people, but they look like 
trees walking. And, and seeing starts working on two levels in this passage. On the one hand, Jesus displays his power to restore sight. But on the other hand, Jesus is working to cure his misunderstanding, to heal our misunderstanding, to improve the disciples' perception of him. And through that, our perception of ourselves, of other people, how we understand the world around us. And the trouble is uh, with understanding that it's kind of like a, a vision test in this passage. You know, that top line is really easy to see. I've never missed it once. I can always see that top letter. You get two or three lines down and, and it gets a little tougher. Words get a little smaller. It's, maybe you call it the fine print or the bottom line. And the first couple lines of discipleship sometimes can come off pretty easy. Easier to read than the lines below. Now, don't get me wrong. The first line, the top of that eyesight chart, it's important. It's a big one. If you don't get that one right, you don't get to keep going. You have to start there. But if you become satisfied with only seeing the top line of discipleship and miss the bottom line, what have you missed? Most of us have trouble reading the lower lines. Or or worse, we're content not even seeing them clearly. It was John Lennon who said once that living is easy with eyes closed. It makes you wonder if sometimes we don't understand Jesus because we've chosen not to. Because we know that if we ever fully took him for his word, it would come at a cost. I might plead with Jesus about my eternity, but it's much harder to expect Jesus to transform tomorrow. I might hope that he would change the the afterlife, but I'm not always sure I want Jesus meddling in my current life. Without a firm commitment to understanding Jesus, people might mistake uh, impaired health for true spiritual health or almost sight for real sight. It's kind of like when patients start to feel better after they've been given a prescribed treatment. Once they start feeling better, they stop taking the treatment. Well, sometimes the ailment comes back or doesn't heal all the way. And so we get the top line clear. Jesus. In this passage, he's called Christ or Messiah. And then as the eyesight chart gets lower and lower and smaller and smaller, things start to get a little blurrier in our discipleship. Lines like, love your enemies. Or don't worry about anything. Seek God instead. Or if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Or sell everything you have and give your possessions to the poor. Or or, you must be perfect. Or deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Or rejoice when you are persecuted on account of me. Or I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. These can all be harder to read than the top line. But the top one doesn't make sense unless you've read all the way down. The disciples understand, but they don't see everything. They're like this blind man. That's what Mark's trying to tell us. And it will take a second touch from Jesus to help them see and understand everything all the way. That's when the rapid pace of this gospel slows down to kind of a deliberate march. Jesus isn't just on the go anymore. He's moving from town to town and back and forth across the lake like he's been so far in Mark's gospel. Now, 
He leads the disciples, we're told, on the way. The boat in Mark is no longer the classroom now. The classroom is the journey. So we're told in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, that Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And Jesus goes with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It not, that's not a short walk from the lake to here to this city. It would take a good while to get there. And geography and the details of them are important in Mark's gospel. And the, the setting of Peter's confession that's coming next are all important. And before this confession, Mark makes sure that his audience knows that Jesus and his disciples have come to Caesarea Philippi. He's plotting out the map for us. It's a city that was founded by Philip, the son of Herod the Great, the brother of the Herod who executed John the Baptist. The first half of the name of the city, Caesarea, indicates that he founded the city in honor, in honor of Caesar Augustus. You know his name, the emperor of Rome from Luke chapter 2. And the proximity of Jesus and his disciples to that seat of Roman power only adds tension to the text they're on the border of the Holy Land and Gentile territory. They are as far from Jerusalem as you can get and still be in Israel. And that's where Jesus asks them the question. And if they thought that the journey to Caesarea Philippi was long, they're about to find out that the journey from misunderstanding to understanding will be much, much harder. Jesus addresses his disciples, says, Who do people say I am? And they report the polls. Uh, numbers are pretty good. They're coming in favorable. The man in the streets has a good opinion of Jesus. Their views uh, kind of offset the slander of all of his bitter opponents. Others regard him as a pawn of Beelzebub or uh, the worries of his own family who think that Jesus is out of his mind or there's some bias from his fellow citizens in Nazareth who dismiss him as just one of them. Most put Jesus in a pigeonhole of a of, of prophet figure. Maybe even John the baptizer or Elijah. In the first place, their, their answers all connect Jesus to the prophetic tradition. They say, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. Now, the prophets, by connecting Jesus to them, give you the same feeling that it, you get when you realize how close they are to Caesarea Philippi. It's a story about the critique of rulers. Prophets come with a message to say that things are going to change, that rulers are coming down. And whether the people believe that God sent Jesus to announce doom and gloom or doom and dawn, they at least believe, at the very least, that God has sent this man. So initially, the people hit on some kind of truth, a little bit of the truth, but not all of the truth. Jesus is more than just another in a long line of messengers that God has dispatched to go and talk to the people. So Jesus probes even further in the text. He says to the disciples, who do, you, who do you say that I am? 
Now, so far in Mark's gospel, the disciples have only called Jesus teacher, but they have asked themselves the same question in, in chapter 4, verse 41. They say, who is this? And he asks them, who do you say that I am? It's a question that every disciple has to answer. But there's even more that Jesus is asking in this seemingly straightforward question, who do you say that I am? And maybe it's that more of this question that's the most challenging part of it, the most demanding, uh, the more that we wish we could avoid when we get asked this question. Because who do you say that I am is at the same time asking, who do you say that you are? That's the, the real rub of the question, the heart of this difficulty, is that if we only had to provide an answer to, to Jesus about the question of his identity, that would be one thing. But in answering the question about who Jesus is also gives voice to who we are. We're the followers of him, aren't we? Who you say Jesus is, is who you have decided to be. You can't answer Jesus' question without revealing who you are. Or, or we could switch it around if you want. Who you are in this life reveals who you have decided Jesus to be. Who you are in this life reveals who it is that you've decided Jesus to be. And Jesus' question is not a test. It's not about getting the answer right. It's the moment when you come face to face with your own commitment, your own discipleship, your own identity. It's the moment when you have to admit to what extent you are willing to follow Jesus and to what extent following Jesus actually connects with some sort of confession about who you believe Jesus to be. And to put it more simply, you have to understand him rightly before you can go where he's leading. So Peter moves to the lead, to the head of the class, not surprisingly, by giving the answer that makes the most sense after all that they have witnessed in Mark's gospel. You are the Christ. Christ being the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. His confession occurs right here at the very center of Mark's gospel. It's sort of a hinge between the, the first half of the gospel where Jesus' power is so prominent and the second half of the gospel where his weakness, his sacrifice becomes the dominant theme. And this confession represents a big leap of faith for Peter. And given all of the expectations around being the Messiah, it was no, by no means obvious that this was about to happen or that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, a few people had been healed a lot of people had been fed, but it's not as if Israel was suddenly becoming free from their pagan dom domination or that the Roman Empire was suddenly being overthrown. In the first century, most Jews believed that the Messiah would be a, a royal figure, the offspring of David, who God would empower to deliver Israel from all of her foes. They were looking for power. And for many, and maybe not all, but many Jews it was a word with royal and political meaning. The Messiah was seen as the, the heir of King David, the king who would unite Israel, free them from their foreign powers. And in the shadow of Caesarea Philippi, Peter's confession would have held some of those hopes of revolt against all of Roman rule. 
And Jesus shows us that even as Peter says the right word, so much of the meaning is lost in translation. Because his confession isn't met with praise. I mean, it's the, confession is the first correct human statement about Jesus' identity in the gospel. It's, it's right. The shouted confession of demons that Jesus had to silence in the earlier parts of Mark is now replaced by a real human witness. But it turns out that the disciples are no better at using these titles than the demons are. And Jesus rebukes them just as quickly. Seeing the top line doesn't always mean that you've understood the bottom line. And the reader, you and I, reading this gospel, know that Peter's answer is correct. It's the title of the whole book. It's what Mark 1.1 starts with. And it seems like a major breakthrough. Finally, they've caught on. We might expect the disciples have finally begun to shake off all of their persistent mistakes. The secret will be out soon. But Jesus doesn't confirm Peter's confession or praise him for his insight. Instead, he, he rebukes him right away in verse 30. He tells him to tell no one. And the verb there, translated rebuke, can also mean warn or, or to charge. Mark uses the same word to describe what Jesus said to the demons when they announced who he was. Now, either Jesus wants Peter to keep a lid on things a little bit longer so he can remain hidden or incognito, or, or he rebukes Peter to remain silent because his understanding of what Christ means needs correction. And after rebuking him, Jesus explains that it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. It's the first in a pattern that we'll see throughout this series where Jesus encounters a a misunderstanding, offers a correction, and then follows it with a teaching about messiahship first there's a misunderstanding he offers a correction then he tells them who the messiah really is he tells them that the son of man's suffering rejection and death all have to do with the hidden ways of god's salvation and the secret is not only that jesus is the christ but that this messiah is going to do unique things through god Only after the powers of uh, their land and the Jewish leaders and the chief priests, the teachers of the law, have put Jesus to to death, will his resurrection follow. Jesus is teaching them the theme throughout this passage, that the way of the Messiah is the way of the cross. The way of the Messiah is the way of the cross. Of the cross. And Jesus doesn't explain his mission to his disciples just to predict future events, but to show them that this is all happening to fulfill God's plan. All of their lofty visions of majesty, the, the ideas of cheering crowds or, or uh, military victory, all come crashing down as Jesus teaches about suffering and death. And it seems in this passage that it flies in one ear and out the other. It's all muddled together for them. They haven't fully understood 
what Peter's words mean. That Jesus would be the Christ might be obvious. But what kind of Messiah he will be is still unclear. They have now heard for the first of many times the key to this entire portion of the gospel. That the way of the Messiah is the way of suffering and death. That to be Jesus' disciple is to embrace that it is costly to follow him. That the way of the Messiah is the way of the cross. And if Jesus is the Christ of the cross, if he is a Messiah of suffering, then who are we? And who are you? Because who we believe Jesus to be means everything for who we believe that we are. He is giving in this passage the dream of a Messiah, a bit of a, a facelift. He has in mind a new way of what it means to be God's appointed and anointed king. And just how new that is starts to emerge passage after passage through the middle of Mark. But just for this moment, before we hear him predict this again and again, we need to examine our own answers to the same question. Who do we say that Jesus is? Would we like to think of him as simply a great human teacher? Would we prefer him as a kind of Superman figure, able to zap all the world's problems into shape? Are we prepared to have the easy answers of our culture challenged by the actual Jesus, by his redefined idea of messiahship, and by the call that's coming up next when Jesus says that to follow him is costly. It'll cost us in three ways. If you come back next week, we'll find out what those are. Let's pray together. Father, we open your word so that we might understand it fully. Not because we believe only in a book or because we believe in something we do not know, but because we believe in a person, your son, the Christ, whom you sent to suffer on our behalf, that we might be restored in our relationship to you, that you might make all things new through him, that by his death and resurrection we receive life forever. Father, Father as people who long to follow Jesus, help us to understand him fully so that we might go where he leads. In Jesus' name, amen.